0: Hey guys, welcome to the season finale of A Higher Way with Tay. I am Taylor Taylor and oh my gosh you guys it's a little bittersweet to be recording this today. Um, Wrapping up season one and like I told you guys before I'm going to take a little break and start this new job. Do a little bit of traveling this summer. I'm moving. I've got so much going on and I really look forward to coming back bigger and better for season two, having some new stuff to share with you guys, new guests, but also just sharing with you like what's going on with me. I mean, this is a crazy time astrologically. We are heading into Aries season right now. We've got the Aries new moon. We have spring equinox. We have the astrological new year. There's some really powerful astrological transits that are happening both collectively. And then also some for me personally, I mean, I've told you guys before, you know, I hate Saturn, but I'm going through this Pluto transit right now. It's Pluto conjunct my natal moon in the fourth house. And it's the first time I've ever experienced this transit. In my life. And I will tell you, it's a doozy. (laughs) It's been rough. But the awesome thing about Pluto is Pluto wants us to step into our power. Pluto wants and calls for our greatest transformation. So that's the season I'm in right now. That's kind of what I'm going through. And I really look forward to coming back for season two with some perspective and some insights on these experiences that I can share with you. And Today, we close out the season with our truly exceptional guest, Karen Perlmutter. Karen specializes in the treatment of substance abuse, and she, during her career as a therapist, she developed a particular interest in supporting the holistic needs of families who are affected by these struggles of loving someone or having a friend or a family member who is an addict and as we talk about in the episode i went through her program many years ago at musc for for friends and family members and it truly changed my life and i want to say on that note as you listen to today's episode that my own experience of loving somebody Who was in the throes of their own addiction was certainly one of the most painful things I've experienced in my life. But it was also the work that went into it and the work that I did around it changed who I am as a person. And it was so influential on my spiritual path, if that makes sense. Like I would not be who I am today if I didn't do the work that she and I talk about in the episode today. So, I just think that's an important thing to mention because, you know, loving an addict is very hard and very painful, but if you can learn the tools and the strategies and the patterns of communication that Karen talks about in these episodes, you can take them with you into every aspect of your life. and. That's the gift that I was given from going through the experiences that I did. Uh, Truly a foundation of my spiritual path, my spiritual beliefs, and my connection to my higher power. So in that sense, what a gift, what a beautiful gift and one that I'm grateful for. So on that note, here's Karen. I love you guys. Thank you so much for supporting me, for being here all through season one. It's going to come back better than ever, baby. I'll see you for season two. Love y'all. Karen, this is such an exciting day to have a chance to share you with my listeners because you have been such a big part of my own life and my own personal growth and expansion for many years. And I really, truly feel like it's a gift to my audience to have the opportunity to take in some of your wisdom and insight around the subject of addiction and families. And, you know, it was because of you that I really learned about addiction and you walked through the fire with my own family for a long time. So it's just such an honor to have you here today on the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you, What's kind words and it it's my honor. I love helping.
0: I love getting the word out and there's just not nearly
1: enough support and information for families out there. So I'm happy to be a resource.
0: Well, you're a wonderful resource. And I, you know, I want to share something with you that I, I think you'll take as a compliment. At least I hope you do because it certainly was intended that way. But, you know, Billy once said to me, Karen Pearlmutter is the only person I know who truly knows and understands addicts without being one herself.
1: Oh, I do take that as a compliment. Do you know when Good.
0: I I mean it is certainly a big one I think.
1: Oh, thank you. You know, I when I first started off like 20 years ago in the field, it's actually fairly rare for somebody to choose to work with the addicted population that doesn't have personal experience with it. And I used to feel really insecure about it, which is a funny thing to feel insecure about. Like, well, no kidding. I feel like you have such street cred, though. <laughs> in in that Maybe realm, I got, you know? like, grandfathered in at some point. You hang out with, like, a thousand recovering people, and you get a little bit of, like, grandfathering in or
0: something. You definitely do. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm curious, though, like, where does that come from? How did you get to the point where you, you know, sort of specialized and worked in this, this field of helping addicts and their families?
1: Yeah, you know, I think life takes funny twists and turns, right? You never really could ever imagine where you'd find yourself. And I, um, I did not want to be a social worker. My, my father was a social worker, and I thought it was a really unglamorous field to go into. But um, after undergrad, I started working with foster kids, and that felt cool to me. And I wanted to go back and um, figure out kind of how to do it well, because I felt like at times, you know, I cared, but I was flying by the seat of my pants on how to, you know, do effective interventions and strategies with them. So I went back to graduate school, and they stuck me in an internship at a methadone clinic. and And honestly, my first thought was like, I mean, probably what much of America would say too. Like, I don't want to help addicts, you know. Like that, mm-hmm. I, I want to work with like, you know, children, orphans, and you know, I don't want to save the world and that kind of thing. But um, I'm, you know, I think life put me exactly where it was supposed to, and I I was um, immediately sort of enamored by the intelligence and creative uh, creativity and sensitivity of. The clients I was working with, and I was like, "These are my people." I just they that this population has always spoken to me.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because you know, even the nurse in me feels like this is not not an easy population, um, especially day in and day out when you are often dealing with people who aren't willing to to get sober or aren't willing to choose recovery, and it's like there's no manual for navigating, you know, life when, when you love someone who's in addiction, but you did sort of create one. And, you know, that I think is like the whole concept of empowering families, which we'll get into, but, but how did that sort of come about as you found your niche in, in working with, with addicts and like starting at the methadone clinic and then, you know, moving on from there, what, what developed in you that, that,
1: I think it was all again, kind of happenstance. So, you know, I started at, at the methadone clinic. I actually ended up staying with them as an employee for a couple of years. Um, and it was just one of the most like beautiful grassroots places you could imagine working. Um, just, I mean, everyone who worked there just had such a heart and spirit for the work and it was very like very nonprofit, you know, it was never money driven. It was just everyone just digging in in the trenches, um, but my next uh, career move was to Charleston, and I landed a job at the medical university, which um, which was kind of a big jump. It was a faculty position at a university, and um, one thing that I immediately realized was different is that the demographic was a higher socioeconomic group. So the patients coming in were more educated, had more family involvement. Um, and that was sort of a game changer. Um, and it really, it wasn't to be clear. It's not to say that, um, you know, people that aren't educated or, or don't have money um, don't have families that are struggling. It's really the reality that when families are, are impoverished or have limited resources, they typically have their own problems. They don't have transportation, they're working three jobs. They didn't have the luxury to participate in the family process. Right. Um, so it was sort of a luxury to be able to have families that wanted to be a part of recovery and um but you know families were just piling into the clinic and and there were there were times that the family was more motivated than the person who was in treatment right i mean right then that's that's not a sweeping statement but there were times that the families were like you know they'd be they'd be sitting in the family lecture with like pens smoking as they were like writing notes and you know in the the recovering people maybe we're just kind of waiting for the next smoke break or that kind of thing right i started yeah. i started paying you know noticing these families that were so desperate for help and um you know talked to our director and said you know hey can we can can i do some a group for the families you know we don't have any family programming here and at the time i assumed i would just um get certified in some sort of like a curriculum that existed for families because i was surely there had to be one and i you know when i started digging into it there w- there wasn't much i mean there's a little there's a little bit out there but it wasn't what i wanted to do it wasn't the way i wanted to work with the families so that's when i began creating the curriculum that i use today and empowering families and you know slowly began looking at the effectiveness of this curriculum and. um you know, doing some outcome studies on it and eventually manualizing it.
0: So I took your course in 2016 and, you know, it absolutely changed my life. And I walked in the door of that program with little to no knowledge whatsoever about how to live any semblance of like a functional or happy life while loving someone in the throes of addiction. And I mean, you want to talk about like a room full of desperate people, like you were saying, you know, taking all those notes and their pens smoking, no. it's, you oh. know, that course helped me rebuild a foundation to a healthy and stable life, whether my loved one was still using or not. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think especially it was like step one of coming in the doors too was really learning and understanding about addiction as a brain disease. Right. So I'd love to start with hearing kind of like a brief overview of, of what the program is and who it's meant for.
1: The Empowering Families Program. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it is um, a ten-week course that I now run in my private practice. Um, it's sort of a variation of what. Um, the original curriculum was. It's, it's adapted and evolved over the years. But uh, it's a 10-week course that is now, thanks to COVID, run as a hybrid course. Um, COVID, as I mentioned, kind of made us all expand beyond our comfort zone. So um, one of the most exciting things to me is that I have, you know, typically in a course cycle, I might have 10 people sitting in the room with me, kind of in that traditional therapy group slash course some setting, but then also we have virtual attendees um, as far away as like Hawaii that are joining in now. So that's really exciting to me that it's expanding and becoming available on a national level for people um, very gradually. I don't do very much marketing, so it's really more kind of word of mouth, um, but it's starting to spread. So, um, you know, I, at least where we live, and I know some places are not as fortunate, um, they're, We have a great support community for families, which I'll talk about a little bit later, but there's a number of support groups, kind of peer-led support groups for family members struggling with addiction, and those are invaluable. Mm -hmm. But what I found with the families that I would talk to over at the clinic was that they would say, you know, it's really good to know I'm not alone, but sometimes it feels like the blind leading the blind, or like we're all so emotionally involved that we don't really know what to do next because, you know we're all just so terrified of what's happening in our lives that we just can't see the forest for the trees. Um, it was the realization that I wanted to offer clinical support to families. I wanted there to be, um, I wanted there to be sort of the equivalent of what the recovering folks were getting in, the, in their treatment groups going on down the hallway for the families. So it's really, yeah. more, it's more of a skill development curriculum um, that's catered specifically to the needs of families that have an addicted loved one.
0: So, you know, there's some core concepts of the program that I definitely want to touch on today. And I mean, I can imagine like that the first week of the program for you is probably akin to like herding cats or <laughs> wrangling in a bunch of just desperate, exhausted, stressed out, angry, devastated people yeah. Yeah, who are living yeah. in chaotic homes, finally right. admitting like, hey, I need help. And then probably simultaneously pretty clueless about what they're supposed to be doing, (laughs) you know. I might even be making their situation worse with their their own behavior. I love that
1: part about it, though. I really do. When families come in, I mean, they're they're so eager for guidance, and you know, like I said, I feel really lucky to have to work with such. Not all clinicians get to work with such motivated populations. So. Um, you know, I love working with recovering folks, but I also love working with the families because they're so motivated. And and yes, some of them come in kind of a hot mess. I definitely do an hour-long psychosocial assessment with every family before I filter them into the group, you know, just to kind of screen and make sure everyone's in a good headspace to start, but also to hear everyone's story because people need to tell their story. And I think until they've told their story, they don't really they're not able to sort of absorb the new information coming in because it feels so unbelievable what so many families have been through that they're like, you got to hear this. Like you won't believe what we have been dealing with. So, you know, I think that that's, that's really the first part. And then it's really inspiring to see that evolution from session one to session 10, because a lot of these concepts are not the kind of thing that click right away. You know, I always say like our brain is like a slowly turning ship, you know, and so those neural pathways are very gradually redirecting from the way that we were doing things and the chaos that we were in and the decision making that kind of made sense but because we didn't know what else to do to a whole new way of thinking about it. It's really exciting to watch over the 10 weeks how people sort of evolve and begin to reroute themselves and this kind of new philosophy begins to make even more sense to them than what they were doing before. So where they never wanna look back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note too, that, that people who come into your program, you know um their loved one there's varying stages of of you know um where on the path of recovery their loved one may might be so it's like it's not like you can only come do this program if the person that you love has agreed to go to treatment or is in the process of recovery i mean i'm sure you have the whole spectrum of um where on the path of that these families loved ones are
1: right yeah so you know it's a Fully recognize this as a you know a long-term illness, a chronic illness that has the potential to be um, relapsing and remitting, right? So, yep. uh, you know, not only do I have people at all whose loved one is at all different stages of full-blown active addiction, you know, just crossing over into their earliest recovery, or they're in their tenth rehab, or they've been sober for six months you know uh it's also not lost on me that your life will continue beyond the 10 weeks that you work with me right so i want these skills to be applicable 2 years from now i want it to be applicable if your loved ones doing great but then they they relapse down the road i want these skills to be applicable so that was really one of the challenges for me in developing the curriculum was finding a curriculum that was had a that threw a broad enough net that it would be able to have tools for every stage of uh what can be sort of a cycling process for some families
0: yes absolutely i i see that um i'd I'd love for you to just because i think it was so influential for me when i first came in and, and maybe this is just the way i remember it but i felt like one of the first things that we focused on was was learning about or understanding like i said addiction as a brain disease and is can you give us you know kind of your clinical perspective on that
1: Yeah. So I like to
0: joke because I am a clinical social worker, not a neuroscientist,
1: but it, it felt so important to me that this that the because my understanding of the neuroscience was so pivotal to me being able to treat this disease effectively and without judgment. Um, that I wanted the families to be able to understand it too. So I kind of joke and I say like, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to get too technical because I'm not capable of being more technical than this. Like (laughs) it's pretty elementary. It is accurate what I share, but it's, it's, um, you know, I'm sure that somebody else could explain it with a lot, a lot greater detail, but uh, you know, sort of the gist of it is that addiction resides primarily in the limbic system, which is this very, uh, very, um, sort of old, archaic part of the brain that goes way, 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 way back to like caveman ancestors. Um, And it's related to survival, right? So it's this part of the brain that's just like, you know, eat, sleep, food, sex, you know, just anything related to survival. Um, It doesn't really think. It's not a part of the brain that has discretion, that has the ability to, you know, say like, "Hmm, well, this might be good in this situation, but probably not as healthy in that situation. Like it doesn't have any of that capacity. It's a part of the brain that, you know, says heartbeat lungs move like it you know it doesn't it doesn't do anything um thoughtfully or in a sophisticated way Um, but it has a a deep connection to dopamine um, because the reward pathway lives inside of that limbic system so uh, when addiction kind of takes over um, which is a whole other reason why some people are more susceptible than others but probably a different podcast for that Um, when addiction begins to take over Uh, the limbic system just becomes really, really activated, but in sort of a, um, almost in an artificial way, because drugs uh, create such high levels of dopamine, uh, unlike, you know, the typical, like what food, water, shelter would, you know, food, water and shelter would release dopamine, but drugs would release like, you know, 50 times that or, you know, so we we call it the hijacking of the survival circuitry, where we have so many units of dopamine being released, uh, that the brain becomes sort of enthralled with with getting more dopamine because that part of the brain actually thinks like wow if if a steak is good for survival and releases 50 units of dopamine this methamphetamine which releases 1200 units of dopamine must be like really good for my survival so it becomes right. completely fixated on that drug without being able to distinguish that like mm, maybe that's not a good kind of dopamine maybe that's why it's releasing such high levels um, meanwhile. Uh, Another kind of key part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex. Um, And that's our that's our very sophisticated part of the brain. That's our most matured part of the human brain that's responsible for things like judgment and long term planning, nuance, um, morals, ethics, Caring about other people, sort of recognizing one's role and how we affect the greater milieu around us,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, that part of the brain ends up becoming deactivated or rerouted to becoming a support system to drug seeking. So families often feel that drug use is really personal. It's like, God, if they loved me, they wouldn't do this. Or how could it? You know, who is this person? I can't believe that. You know, this isn't how I raised him. That kind of thing. But I think when we begin to understand that we have this real deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, which is the person that you know and love, uh, and this real sort of hyperactivity in the limbic system um, that's just driving them for this drug that that their brain thinks is related to survival, we see sort of this primal animalistic bizarre behavior start coming out and, and we understand it a little bit better with a bit more compassion, hopefully.
0: I completely agree. And I think that was a game changer for me. Like you said, you know, where understanding it as a biochemical response slash, you know, brain disease, right? You begin to take it a little less personally, when you can start to understand that. So for me, it was like that, that the beginning of that was a was a big step um, Mm -hmm. in, in just being able to support, Um, Billy, but also like taking his behavior and his actions just a little bit less personally. And I'd like to ask you too, because I think there's some conflicting information out there as about like, is addiction truly a a DNA? Can it be passed down in our
1: DNA? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question with kind of a complicated answer. Um, And again, I'm not a a genomic researcher, so I'll give you the, the fairly elementary answer. Um, so one thing that at least at this point science has not identified that there's an addiction gene um, and you know that's kind of good news and bad news because if the, the good news is that um, you know, there isn't a specific gene that we can pass down the bad news is that if there was uh, you know there's certain diseases like sickle cell disease that if you have it uh, if you have that gene you'll have the disease and science is getting to a point where they can actually um, you know, extract embryos that have that gene or that sort, you know, sort of thing. We can do certain natural, not, I guess, unnatural selection um, if if somebody chooses to do something like that. So there isn't a genetic, uh, there isn't a specific gene <clears throat> and there isn't even a, a, a specific like cluster of genes on the DNA strand that's specifically responsible for addiction, but it is largely related uh, to genetics, which is kind of confusing. But, but what that means is that Uh, We believe that about 50% of the reason that any individual struggles with addiction ultimately is because of their genetic makeup, but that Mm -hmm. has to do with things like the way their body metabolizes different substances, which is rooted in our genetics. It has to do with predispositions to mental illness, to impulse control, um, to the ability to sort of move away from decisions that aren't working well. And a lot of that kind of stuff is actually built into our genetics.
0: That's so fascinating to me. And I I think also, you know, we know that our environments can impact our genetics too, right? So it's like, even though there may not be this gene that can get passed down, you can clearly see that there are plenty of families out there who goes Uh back generations and generations where addiction or substance abuse, is prevalent in the family, which is why I think some people um, seem to think that it is an actual like gene that is passed yeah, down. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, um, I, I would have thought so too, by the way, if I if I hadn't been more educated on it. I did have, um, I did actually have a genomic researcher uh, once attend my course many years ago and he came up to me um, after the course and said, you know, you did a decent job for a rookie talking about genetics, Karen, you know, it was, it was accurate. I was like, whew, good. But, um, but what he said was, you know, all of these other variables, um, you know, contribute. There is another 50% to the story, right? Where you would, um, you know, were sort life experiences or traumas or depression or um, influence you know social influences do impact if you fall off a ladder and get prescribed percocet all that kind of stuff right also influences addiction but he said you know if there was not that genetic component there it would never turn into addiction it would turn into maybe some some other vulnerability maybe an eating, right. disease, maybe you know who that would be someone else's genetic makeup but he said that, that genetic piece has to be there so that was Uh, Or those genetic—we call them genetic vulnerabilities because it's not a specific uh, gene configuration.
0: I like that genetic vulnerability. I think that can apply to a lot of other things too, outside of addiction alone. Um, Especially going back to like the environment affecting, you know, our DNA in that way as well. But right, that gene gene expression of experience. Yeah. 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 Right. So, kind of going back to the families for a second. You know, we were talking about these core concepts of your program and you know i know one of the first ones if not the first one focuses on enabling and i wonder if i mean i'm sure it's intentional that that one is like the first one out of the gate you get these families in there it's like okay we're gonna first thing first we got to talk about enabling so I, i would love for you to talk about like what does that look like and how do families get trapped in that behavior
1: yeah, got it. So, you know, I actually like to start with a little bit of a curveball here, which is just to remind that, you know, enabling has become such a dirty word, Yeah, uh, particularly around addiction. And, you know, if we think about that term enabling, um, what it really means at its root is making something possible for somebody, right? It's that you're enabling them to have an opportunity or um, or something like that. So I don't hate the word enabling. I really don't. I think, you know, uh, my own children are a bit younger, we're, we're getting into the teen years. But, you know, if, if one of my kids ends up having a struggle with addiction or any other struggle, like, I hope to enable them to have opportunities to get help for that, right? So I, yeah. I really don't like to villainize the concept as a general uh, concept. I think we just need to be able to recognize the gray area in there that, um, you know, there's pod- positive enabling where we're creating opportunities for somebody who might need some help or some guidance at a, Point that's tough in their life, uh, but that also can become a really slippery slope. And there's another end of that continuum, right, to where it could become unproductive or counterproductive. Um, and and I think that where that happens is when we are now in a pattern that what the thing that we're actually enabling is the continuation of destructive behaviors, right, either our yeah. own or theirs. Um, and I think that the reason that people do that, I mean, you know, sometimes. In the course when we start brainstorming about like hey let's come up with a definition for codependency or enabling people often say like oh it's when you when you're doing something that you know is terrible for a person because you love them and i'm like all right well let's dissect that like why would you do that right like (laughs) right like i hear where you're coming from but like that's a really weird thing to do and you know we do it because we're desperate to get back some sort of a stability in our life we're desperate to you know to not live in fear all the time there's this belief that, like, surely the next thing that I do to help them will get them back on their feet, right? It's like, how could mm-hmm. it not? Like, if I if I help them get this job, you know, their job back, or if I get them a car, that'll that'll give them some dignity, and then they'll get back on their feet again. And, you know, I, I think it's just this this drive to uh, to want to help, um, but we do so in a way that I call having the low beams on. It's like you're driving down a country road in the dark and you have those low lights on that you can only see what's immediately in front of you. So we're kind of like putting out the fires, we're going behind them and putting out the fires and uh, or or going, you know, trying to make things just a little better for them so that they're not stressed out. Uh, But we're missing the big picture. We don't have those high beams on and we can't see that what we're doing is actually giving them opportunity to continue to self-destruct.
0: Totally. And I love what you said about the gray area, because I think so much of the real work comes from understanding the gray area in regards to enabling, because it's like, just to give an example, you know, um, if I were to drive somebody that I love to go meet their dealer and give them money to, you know, buy drugs, like, I think that would be fair to say that I would probably be enabling that behavior, but then I know that there are other families who are, could say, this person is at risk of dying if they don't get their next fix and like, you know, they're trying to keep someone alive in, in, in that. The other part of that gray area that I deeply personally empathize with is like, sometimes we may make choices where we are probably or definitely enabling addictive behavior, but it is to keep our lives somewhat functioning and stable. Because when the addict is spiraling out of control, we certainly are on the receiving end of that type of chaos in our personal lives too. And it's like being the quote, healthy one or sober one or whatever you want to call it, you know, able to go to work and trying to pay the bills to keep the lights on. It's like, you're trying to also protect that. And so that's where that gray area sometimes of enabling, it just gets messy and complicated. It's not as simple as like, oh, that person's an enabler, you know,
1: there's no, no question about that. I think, you know, a lot of families are just focusing on surviving. Yes. You know, they're not, they don't feel like they have the luxury to be focused on, on thriving, you know, that, that feels like too, too grand. Um, and, and, And it's, It is a reality that a substance user's consequences often will become your consequences too, right? Yes, so Um, true. And that's something that families often have to deal with. You know, I I recently gave a training to clinicians about working with families. And one of the clinicians kind of said, you know, Karen, when you talk about setting boundaries, like, do you ever have people come back and say, well, you know, easier said than done? And I said, well, yeah, for sure. And I'll be the first to admit that. I mean, I constantly think about (laughs) Constantly think about, like, is this something you know, am I suggesting something or even discussing something that I would not be able to follow through with my own children or uh, or with my own husband? And I I try not to give too much directive advice. I would never say to somebody, you know, you need to kick your kid out of the house or something like that. That's, you know, I'll I'll help you have the tools to make your own decisions about that. I, I feel like that's far too personal for me to decide for you. But you know, I, I teach a, a model called the detachment spectrum. And I think I have a little bit of a, I, I think my my philosophy on it probably differs a bit from maybe what you'd get at Al-Anon. Um, I say that at one end of the detachment spectrum, you have kind of the most enabling, most enmeshed, you know, most entangled behavior you could get into with an addicted loved one. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what we would call complete detachment with love, right? So, not abandonment, different concept, but, you know, saying, I love you, good luck, I can't be a part of this with you, right? And, you know, in a strange way, having worked with families now for about 10 years, I see value in both ends of that spectrum and I see value in everything in between. And what I mean by that, because I know it's a little bit of a controversial thing to say, um, I think families have a right to try the things that could work because mm-hmm. because either maybe they'd work, right? You know, send send your loved one to, to a great rehab. Maybe that would work. You know, buy them a car, help them with, you know, help them get back on their feet and pay their first month's rent. Who knows, maybe it could work. But at the very least, you have the peace of mind that if something awful happens to them, at least you love them well, right? You tried those things. And I think yes. that we all need to be able to live with as little regret as possible with a disease that is this tragic so you know my my work with families is just to make sure that you don't get stuck at any point on that continuum so if you've tried point a and it was ineffective or counterproductive or toxic you know we need to move on to b and then if that's also not effective or toxic we need to move on to C. like eventually we get to a point that it's really not that hard you know when that when that woman said it's easier said than done. You know, when you've tried all of these things and you've tried to love them well in all the ways that you know how, and it's just not working, it's depleting you of resources and, you know, finances and emotional wellness, and you don't feel safe, mm-hmm. and they're not even getting better because of it. They're getting worse. You know, at a certain point, detaching with love begins to make more and more sense and sort of walking yeah. that journey with families and helping families understand that it is okay to gradually walk toward detaching with love. Um, if that's the best option that we have in a bad situation, that kind of becomes the work.
0: Yes, it definitely does. And on that, in that work, and on that path of learning the detachment with love, you know, we have to talk about that other dirty word that you brought up, boundaries, you know? And i, I it's funny, because like, I, just like enabling, it's like, why is that such a threatening word sometimes? Like, how can the idea of setting a boundary feel less triggering to both people? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I think for a couple reasons, I think boundaries imply that like, I have a right to take care of myself. And that and somebody else might have to feel discomfort because of that. And I think I was just talking to somebody about the fact that like American culture, like really celebrates codependency, particularly in moms and, you know, sort of this idea that like, if somebody dies, like at their funeral, you know we say like they were just the best mom ever they never complained they gave of themselves constantly like they never put themselves first and you're like hmm. <laughs> is that really like a great thing to celebrate that like a person right. like always sacrificed for everybody else all the time like there's right some balance there right so you know i do think that some elements of our culture um just are, aren't comfortable with the idea that boundaries are a healthy thing Um, you know, I think the other piece of it is that boundaries are often confused as abandonment. And, you know, I will point out that on my detachment spectrum that I talk about from enabling all the way over to detaching with love, I don't put abandonment anywhere on that continuum. It's not even part of the discussion. In fact, somebody said, well, where does abandonment fall? And when I thought about it, my answer was abandonment is kind of a symptom. Abandonment is what we do when we're so enmeshed and so enabling and we're so stuck on that end of the spectrum that we've now burned ourselves out and we get the efforts and we're like you know what screw them they can just fend for themselves right so you know to me that's we're not ever talking about abandonment or talking about boundaries you know one of my favorite quotes that I saw and I think I saw it like in a very scholarly place like Facebook Um, (laughs) I really do I think that's where it was but um it said it said boundaries are the distance between which i can love you and still love myself and i think that nails it i think that's exactly what boundaries are and at that point it becomes less scary that's
0: beautiful and i i love how you say that about abandonment not being on the table as something you know in the process of recovery for a family that were going to get to or that we're willingly going to choose you know and but i can also see especially for the addict but i think also for the family too where establishing boundaries feel like that's what's happening that like the consequence of a boundary is abandonment um or that ultimately it's going to make someone else uncomfortable but on the flip side that quote is so beautiful because the truth is in a in a good situation a good healthy boundary allows for no abandonment, it allows for me to love you and you to love me, and there to be some semblance, anyway, of a relationship. It um,
1: allows you to be more. So I'm sorry to cut you off, but it allows you to be more loving. Yeah, because you have more space for love when you don't resent the hell out of them, right? You know, or you're not, yeah. or you're not so depleted that you're hanging on by a thread. Um, you can actually look at that person with a bit more compassion and understanding of what maybe they're going through
0: absolutely and that's certainly the end goal i think so mm-hmm. i mean i'm sure every family i know every family in your program in the beginning is different in regards to what types of boundaries need to be set but you know w- what's one of the ones that you see as kind of like the most common one in the beginning anyway that like um families sort of have to learn if you can even name one yeah I'm that, sure there's yeah, a that, ton
1: that it's a good yeah. it's a good question um So I use a model called value-based boundary settings where I don't focus on specific like contingencies. Um, I don't think that those work very well. That idea that like, you know, you need to go to five AA meetings to be able to live in this house, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I really try to move families away from that type of thinking. I've never seen that be effective. So um, I really encourage families to think about what values need to be present. For you to be able to have some sanctity in your life, for you to be able to protect yourself, to protect your children, that kind of thing. And you know, I, I think that a low-hanging fruit is safety, which is a value, yeah. right? So I think that you know, if we're looking for like the the real bare minimum kind of brass tacks, what are we looking for? In a, for a family that's in crisis, um, what are the boundaries that are needed to feel safe physically and emotionally? Um, so that would be sort of one place. And that that, of course, will look different. Is it you know, you can't drive the kids around if I don't know that you're sober or not? Yeah. Um, is it, you know, you can't be in the house if you're going to be aggressive, that kind of thing. Um, some of the other ones that, that you know, are some of the more basic ones is unless you are working on some sort of a venture for self-improvement or want to be part of the solution, then we need to set some boundaries with you. You know, I tend to have a lot more flex space for somebody who is trying to be a part of the solution even if that process is messy or not going perfectly for them, if they're still having some slips and relapses and struggling, uh, but you can see them actually actively sharing your investment in self improvement, that they want change just like you do. They, they see that what's happening is unacceptable and unhealthy also, and they're participating in that discussion. So, um, so I would say those are probably basic ones. The third one I would say is consideration. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, addiction tends to, Rob uh, an addicted loved one of a lot of good values, and one of them is consideration and sort of recognizing how our actions are affecting other people. So we talk a lot about setting boundaries around things that are inconsiderate or kind of disrupt the greater milieu. And you know, just I just wanted to speak to one thing you mentioned earlier, which is like how when you start to set boundaries, that they can feel um, like abandonment. And you know, I think a lot of family cultures are set up around the idea that that love is synonymous with keeping somebody else comfortable all the time, that like, that's mm-hmm. what, what we do, you know? That, And I think that there is a gradual culture shift that has to happen in the family that, you know, it, it's wonderful to be comfortable. We hope that that can happen, but that's not really what love is about. Uh, right. Sometimes we have to be uncomfortable to love. Sometimes we have to sacrifice to love. Sometimes we need to look out for the greater good to love. Um, you know, so in that regard, I I think that if families can shift the narrative on what love is, it doesn't feel so confusing when you start setting boundaries.
0: Absolutely. I I think that's beautiful, you know, is, 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 and that's why I also feel like just this program was such a gift for me because it, it went deeper than just me being in crisis. Um, because someone I loved was an active addiction. It really Mm -hmm you know went to the root of some of these like you said i mean what love is and and what love looks like and and another part of that i think is the communication patterns right so yeah. like you you were doing this program you're learning about enabling you're learning about boundaries and then you know we start the process of of discovering where our ineffective communication patterns are and where effective ones are and i'd love if you would give an example you know in the program of of how you sort of teach that concept because i just know from my experience and i know you can agree from yours but <laughs> communication with an active addict is like beating your head against a brick wall you oh, know yeah. and then like you may be in there learning all this material and are coming to understand and making sense of what a boundary is and making sense of where you are you know doing your own behaviors that are um harmful but then it's like you want to try to communicate or, sh- and it's like, if this person isn't on the receiving end of, of being in a place where they can understand it, it's, right. it isn't right. effective. So like, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question. So one of the things that I'll talk about with families when we get about halfway through the course, and we're really kind of in the thick of the boundary setting module, um, I'll have each family separately discuss uh, whether they feel like their loved one is in a place that they can, that their head is clear enough that, you know, they're not in a manipulative place, they're not in a, you know, really toxic place. And could they collaborate with us on this? Could they be a part of this process with us? You know, and I think a good example of that, Taylor, would be your own story with Billy that there was a time when he was stable enough in his sobriety that you guys sat down together and collaborated yeah. around boundaries, right? I think he even said to you, like, you know, if I slip, please give me a little grace, but if I re- if I fully relapse, please kick me out, right? So that's like yep. a, that's a great discussion uh, where there's collaboration and, you know, they're buying into the plan as much as you're buying into the plan because you're working on yep. it together. Um, so I, I ask families to distinguish and obviously it's more of an intuitive question. Uh, do you feel like your loved one could collaborate with you in these boundary setting discussions or do you feel like you're on, a, I call it a self-preservation track or an individual path which means that your loved one is just kind of their brain is just so hijacked by the disease at this point that there's no way that they could productively participate in this process without being um you know without manipulating without engaging yeah. in self-pity or victimizing themselves or you know whatever it is where we're, um so and i think that that really um determines what the communication is going to look like um so you know, I think that um, the first thing we do is really figure out how to get on our own side of the street. And I think families really struggle with that, honestly. Like mm-hmm. at first, like families often are like 74% on their loved one's side of the street, you know, and like a yep. little bit a little bit on their own side of the street. And they're like, well, what we need to do to make things better is they need to do this, 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 and this. And until they do this, then this, right. And And then also those questions come in about, you know, how can I get them to follow my boundaries if they're not in a good place? And I like to remind that boundaries are something that we're informing somebody else of. We can do so in a respectful way, but we're not asking people permission for our boundaries, which means that we need to be thoughtful about what kind of boundaries we're setting. Are they boundaries that we actually are in control of on our side of the street, right? So this question came up about, a, a, a woman who said, like, you know, if my husband, if I told him he couldn't come to Christmas this year because he was too a, a, aggressive last Christmas, he would, you know, my six foot four intimidating husband would be like, Are you kidding me? This is my house. There's no way that you can kick me out of here. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, she kind of looked at me and said, So this boundary setting thing would never work. Uh, but, you know, we we had to back up as a group when that topic came up and say, well, what is within your control? And what she realized, she didn't love the options. But for instance, one of the options was she could leave, right, for, for Christmas <laughs> if she didn't want to be a part of it. So sometimes we have to kind of make sacrifices in order to set boundaries and protect ourselves um, and not be dependent on somebody else understanding where we're coming from or saying, oh, yes, I completely support you. You know, no longer paying my rent for me. Thank you so much for setting such a healthy boundary. <laughs>
0: like, totally. There's,
1: there's people that are not going to be in that place. So we have to be ready to follow through on boundaries and make sure the boundary is something that is fully within our control to activate. Um, you know, I think in regard to communication, whether whether we're setting boundaries or not, um you know, I, I think families are notorious for trying to communicate through lecturing trying to motivate a loved one through shaming them or guilting them, which never ever has worked for any human on earth as a, as a, as a motivational technique. Um, families give a ton of unsolicited advice, even if they have not ever been in the seat of a substance user, um, which is typically very, very poorly received by somebody who is struggling with addiction. Um, you know, families try to communicate by controlling. I always say families have an agenda-based communication and it never works. And an agenda-based communication is when like, you're always looking for an opportunity to like make a point or teach a lesson or like get, you know, a little like nugget of wisdom into their head and they see through it and they don't appreciate it and they shut down because of it. So, uh, you know, in regard to communication we can set whatever boundaries we need to to take care of ourselves so these concepts are not mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. but effective communication starts with validation it's validating that you know hey listen we're both in a tough spot here i'm struggling like hell over here but i can see that you're struggling too i i have no idea what it feels like to be dope sick i have no idea what it feels like to not be able to get through a panic attack without a benzo you know What what does it feel like? You know, I can only speak to my feelings. And I think that's, that's, that staying on our own side of the street. Yeah. You know, so rather than saying to somebody, um, you know, God, you're always, you know, you always get so withdrawn and moody and, you know, you're, you're always acting like an addict or you're just, you, you know, I can tell you're about to relapse or, you know, whatever. A my side of the street statement would look like you know when you start to withdraw or get moody it kicks me into fear mode that mm-hmm. things are sliding back and I need to figure out how to take care of myself with that right so it's it's a yep. real shift in the way we think about what our job is as
0: communicators that's such a good example and I love when you touched on sort of that the validation aspect of this too and how important that is and um I think circling back to the idea of like, a relapse response plan, if you want to call it that or whatever, like what we were talking about that Billy and I had. It's kind of funny because going back to sort of the cultural um, way we would approach this, it, it almost felt to me like like the idea of a prenup, right? Like it's very unromantic. <laughs> I mean, I just right. want to believe that I can trust you. Like, can you yes. just give me that, you know? Right. Um, right. But in reality, because he was willing to sort of participate in yeah. creating yeah. that plan, he was a partner in it. And then less of a, maybe it felt less of just like a consequence that I was handing down. Cause it was like, this is something that we decided and agreed on yeah. when you had some presence of, you know, a, a healthy mind to participate in, in that part of the, the, the stage. So I I feel like that's just another example too, of, of a sort of establishing these communication patterns that are Um, about validating and about co like working together um, instead of just us as the family figuring out all these boundaries and rules and then laying them all out for the addict, right?
1: Yeah, um, I I agree. I mean, I think anyone who's able to communicate respectfully should have a voice in this process, right? I mean, it's sort of like there are two victims to this disease the family and the person who's kind of trapped in in the grip of the disease the yep. enemy is the addiction right yep. but but we tend to kind of turn against each other instead and think that the enemy is each other and it gets really messy at that point so yeah i mean I, I i've always felt you know because i work with recovering people as well and have worked with them for even longer than i've worked with the families you know it became clear to me Listening to my clients when when they were in a setting that they didn't feel judged and they didn't feel attacked and they didn't feel controlled by their family, that they had some valid grievances, they had valid fears, they had, you know, valid perspective to share. Unfortunately, because of active addiction, they were sharing it in a very inappropriate way, either by getting yeah. high or by being abrasive or by being passive aggressive or doing something that wasn't being received by the family. Uh, but when we when I'm given Even people, even people in active addiction to some degree, when I've given them the space to share where they're coming from, they have some really interesting and meaningful things to say. They often feel really lost and scared and they need, you know, it's something that wouldn't be too hard for the average person to empathize with
0: completely agree and you know I have in my notes um, from your TED talk which by the way I'm going to link that in the show notes and would totally encourage everybody listening to to watch and listen to because it it's amazing but you know from that you said addiction takes hostages addiction mm-hmm. is a catastrophic assault on a family but the the key there is that that's the disease of addiction right we it's not necessarily the person person. or the act themselves. And for me, what a huge step it was to learn to channel my anger, my frustration, my grief, my sadness, all that stuff towards the disease of addiction instead Mm -hmm. of, you know, towards my loved one. That was a game changer. Good. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's it. I think it really, uh, it certainly can feel like
1: they are the perpetrator because it's yeah. them making the choices and the actions and I think that can be a very complicated line for people. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly if things get real murky when you know if somebody is being physically abusive and or having an affair, you know, during active addiction uh, and I, and I neither one of those are in the criteria for um, for addiction by the way, but uh, I mean the decisions that they make can feel very personal and they can feel like choices and they are choices. But yep. they are choices that are being made by a brain hijacked by addiction. And I think that's that distinction really is an important clarifying point.
0: I agree. I definitely agree. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, in the program and in the process, there, you know, the, the end goal becomes a little bit of the establishing this idea of a healthy family identity, right? Sure. And I mean, the whole subject of the island of sanity, I feel like we could do a, a completely separate podcast on just focusing on that alone, because of, of all the stuff that I've learned um, from working with you and in your program, that's probably the biggest thing that I carry with me and continue to use in my daily life. Now the concept of, of having and maintaining that island of sanity. So can you share with everybody a little bit about what what that is? Sure. Um, I had no idea that
1: concept was going to take off as much as it did. Um, that seems mm-hmm. to be the, the concept that people really remember, but the reason I think people remember is because it's so needed, right? So, yes. um, the Island of Sanity was sort of a visual concept that I came up with a number of years ago to explain that sort of, you know, there is this, uh, this part of us that we have to protect and that we Sometimes, you know, sometimes we grew up in a family where we we didn't get the memo that we were supposed to protect it or for some reason along the way we forgot that it was our job to protect it or we got so wrapped into the chaos of our loved one's addiction that that felt more important than protecting it. Uh, But the island of sanity is the idea that we have these things like our right to safety and our right to um, having time and energy to dedicate to ourselves and things we care about, personal goals, career development, financial stability, Um, Our right to be surrounded by people who who are considerate to us and respectful to us—you know, just basic. What I would say is basic human rights, at -hmm. least to be pursuing. We don't always have access to these things, but we certainly deserve to at least be striving for these things. Um, That all falls within that island of sanity, and I always say you're sort of the soldier that marches around the perimeter of it of that island of sanity and has to protect it. And that's where those boundaries come in, right? If something or someone <laughs> is getting too close to that island, you have a right to establish boundaries to protect it. And it's not that different than that generic concept of like putting your your oxygen mask on first right. that everybody talks about, right? It's that, I mean, it's the same kind of idea that like without my island of sanity, I am not a full version of myself. I do not have my wits about me. I'm not able to help anybody.
0: Completely. I think the other thing for me, when I learned that concept too, was like, it was just such a good feeling to be, again, maybe having the validation that that was something that I deserved, that it was a a right for my life to have, even if it was this teeny tiny little island, but that I had some place I could plant my feet, that I could create some peace where, you know, the behavior of the addict hopefully could not penetrate. You know what I mean? And I I know that's tricky and that involves some adjustments at times. But right. but just having that that um sort of maybe being told that hey, you d- you are allowed to have this, it's a birthright to have a place right. of peace amidst all the chaos. Yeah. That felt really good. And and that to this day is still something that I strive to maintain at all costs with anything going on in my life, you know, that island of sanity where I have peace regardless of what is going on outside.
1: Uh, I love that, you know, and it's not meant to be um, in place of our loved ones, right? It's not like I have more of a right to peace, you know, Um, they have a right to have an Island of sanity too. And if that's similar enough to yours, you guys can share an Island, and yep. if it's incredibly different, if what brings them contentment and what is the life they want to live it looks really, really different, then maybe you have separate islands, right? And that, but right. you know, there's sort of like a right to for all to have this. And I, I think that uh, you know where it gets a little confusing and people really struggle. Like you said, people get triggered by the idea of boundaries. Um, you know, I think it's the idea that like I don't deserve to take care of myself when my loved one's struggling, and and that's not really the what we're going for. The idea is that your your needs matter and your rights matter, but mine do also right. Yes. It's, it's the also part that allows the boundaries to be there.
0: Yes. Completely agree. Okay. I think, you know, another part of the program that is important to touch on is the concept of, you know, relapses and slips <laughs> and when it all just completely implodes or falls apart. And I know that's a a, a complicated and personalized part of everybody's situation and recovery, but it is a part, you know, and um, I'd love for you to just touch on a little bit about how that is weaved in with your program and how you kind of work on navigating the individual issues in regards to relapses and slips with with your, with your clients. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, so first of all, I actually like to acknowledge that both the family and the addicted loved one or recovering loved one can have slips or relapses. I think yes, that's important sure. to acknowledge, right? Like, I agree. Yeah. I, I had a woman come into my office um, recently who was like, Karen, I went through your course and I've been seeing you as a therapist. And yet when I got on the phone with my child who I haven't talked to in a couple months, my addicted loved one, I backslid so quickly and started talking to him so disrespectfully. He, tr- I felt triggered. I was scared. He sounded entitled. It made me fear that like he was going to you know, go back to the old way that things were. And I got so afraid that I started just berating him. And that's such old behavior for me that that was, that it was a relapse. And I said, you know, let's just take a moment and use this as a growing opportunity to remember that if we're susceptible to this types of, you know, sort of like, oh my God, I thought I was at a good place. And like, whoo, just slid all the way back to the old behavior. That old wiring was still right there. Our loved one has that same susceptibility and yet we we have very little flexibility or room uh to be able to appreciate relapses in a loved one right there are, are very little tolerance i should say families often yeah. are almost very cutthroat about relapses now i understand and I, I realize it would be remiss to not say this that i do understand that a relapse could be death for our loved one and i'm not yeah. that in any way um so you know when stuff feels life and death the stakes are simply higher uh, but the reality is that, you know, being angry at a loved one does not change whether they're going to live or die through a relapse, right? In fact, taking a more compassionate stance or more understanding stance is probably more likely for them to not feel that it's catastrophic and there's no way back from it. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, I typically refer to relapses and slips as flare ups because mm-hmm. this is a, a relapsing remitting disease. I I think it's important to sort of look at it like we would look at diabetes or something where we would normalize that as potentially part of the process. Now, with diabetes, of course, we hope that somebody is stable and you know has years of of stability and remission. and uh, and same goes for addiction. we We certainly hope for that. And the good news is there are cases where people have long-term sustained remission. But I think one of the biggest mistakes that families make is that when there is a slip or a relapse that happens, the family responds often in, in an emotional way uh, that is probably the most counterproductive thing that they could do, right? Which is why yeah. families are typically the last person. The, the family is the last one that the addicted loved one would ever want to talk to about a relapse. They lie about it. They hide it. Right. They, right? Yep. Uh, you know. Whereas if they go to a therapist or a sponsor, that person is gonna be a lot more grounded and say, man, that sucks, what do you think happened? Let's talk that through. How can we get you, you know, are you re- are you done with this relapse? Do you wanna get back yep. on track? How can we put those supports in place so that you can do that, right? Yep. Um, so, you know, I do think that there can be, you know, you were talking about that relapse, um, I'm not sure what you, I call it an early- Response interest. plan, I think. yeah, yeah, a relapse <laughs> response plan. Um, You know, in a case like yours and Billy, I think it's really great to have, um, you know, those collaborative discussions about, you know, I I think I mentioned earlier that Billy made a good point, which is if I use one time, you know, if, if I'm dealing with something stressful or whatever, and, you know, my addiction just kind of collapses under the weight of it, and I use once and I'm mad at myself, and I'm trying to get back on track again you know, maybe just let me, give me a little rope to do that. See what I do with it. You know, maybe I will get back on track and, and, you know, try to come from a place of compassion. Um, However, you and I both know that there are times that people are off to the races, right? And they're lying and they're stealing and they're, you know, very quickly sliding into dangerous behaviors. And yep. And there are times that we need to go into self-preservation mode at that point. And, you know, that's when we would have more of a self-preservation plan. Right. Uh, You know, I know at the time that you and I were having these discussions, you had a like an infant or a toddler. Yep. Um yep. you know, and and that's what I mean by a self-preservation plan that, you know, if we're gonna have mature conversations about this, we have to understand how are you going to take care of yourself financially, emotionally, spiritually, yep. um, if, you know, suddenly you become a single parent or something like that. So yep. um, you know, I, I think that we wanna look at it like we would any other disease, but if we have a loved one who relapses into cancer we'd also want to have a thoughtful grounded plan on how we would respond um yep. as a family right so it's
0: absolutely a, agree same sort of thing and I'm so grateful that I had that. And, and also, you know, that's where the support of the other people that are doing the program too comes in, you know, full swing. Is like at that later stage when you're maybe talking about relapses or talking about these types of plans and, and having the support of you and then the support of the other people in the group was huge. But I I, I think that was such an invaluable part of the program for me was, was putting those foundations in place of like, hey, if the rug gets pulled out underneath, God forbid, we don't want it. Neither of us want it. Right. But if it does, let's collaborate on a plan of how to handle it. So yeah, I love that.
1: And I I think one, one, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think one of the most important features that you could put in place uh, as a loved one is having a support system you you mentioned that i think it's it's really worthy of the of the stage time you know having uh you know an al-anon sponsor or having a little tribe of other moms that are dealing with this or other spouses that are dealing with this or other siblings that are dealing with it and you can find that if, if you don't have that in your own community like i said charleston happens to have a number of different resources uh support communities for families but you can always find them online and there's some really good ones I mean, being with other people who get it, not just yes. like your best friend or your sister. I mean, best friends and sisters are amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. If they're not going through that in their own lives, yep. it's you're not going to get the same type of support as somebody who who really, really gets it and is just going to sit with you and be present and know what you need in that moment, right? And I, you know, I Absolutely. think it, no matter how well-prepared we are, no matter how great our coping tools are, no matter how emotionally intelligent we've become through this process... When our loved one relapses, it's gonna feel devastating and scary and we're gonna be pissed and we're all the all the big feels are gonna come up. You know, at that point our own brain is a little bit hijacked and we can't always trust our own decision making until we've mm-hmm. kind of come off the ledge a little bit. You know, I think to have a pre-established support system that we've invested in and gotten to know and we've created friendships and connections with to be able to pick up that phone and say, listen, I'm not thinking clearly, can you think clearly for me and help me sort through this? I'll do the same for you
0: if it happens to you. uh, That is absolutely invaluable. I totally agree. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, it's the one thing that I wish I had done sooner, you know, um, was just find that community of people who got it because it was so helpful once I had it.
1: Yeah, this is one disease that, you know, for better or worse tragically this disease is hits about 1 in 10 people which means that wow. you know un, unlike some incredibly rare illness that somebody might have where you have to you know go to India to find somebody else who has it you know this is a disease that absolutely nobody should have to be facing alone because there yep. is, there are people everywhere dealing with this so when i meet a family that says we've been dealing with this for 10 years and we don't know anyone else dealing with it Yeah, one of the most tragic things that comes into my office, believe it or not, because it breaks my heart to think somebody has privately, secretly behind closed doors, been struggling with this when there are so many arms that will come take them in.
0: Oh, my gosh, Karen, I totally agree. And I feel like in this town alone, you know, there's a lot more there's a bigger community than I think people even realize. And that's why I was so excited to have you come on too, because, you know, Billy's episode was the most shared episode of this podcast by hundreds. Oh, and it, that it, tells yeah. me something, right? Yeah. People need it. People wanted to hear that. People were sharing that with other people. And I know that's going to happen with this episode too. And that's what makes me grateful because I've been in that place where I felt alone and that nobody got it. And I didn't know where there was a community of people. I didn't know where there was somebody like you until I found you that could help me. And so that's, you know, my message. The one thing I can give out is just like having been through this experience, um, the importance of finding that community to, to help you through it. And I want to say to you, you know, the work you do in, it makes me tear up a little bit, Karen, because it's so like, it's such an incredible gift. And the world of addiction is riddled with heartache and pain and loss. And I've only ever loved one act. And I know you've loved a lot more than that. So it takes a really special (laughs) kind of person to sign up every single day to go to work and do the work that you do. But also like the families that you've helped, mine included, that's what changes the world. And the tools that I have because of taking your program and the work that you and I did together are truly tools that I carry for the rest of my life. And that's why I reiterate that having you on today is a gift that I can share with other people. And I I would love for you to, to tell people where they can find you if they need you.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for all the words. And, you know, I think uh, I consider myself just beyond lucky to have a job that's so meaningful. I mean, how many people get to do work that they truly love and feel passion for and get such reward from? And, you know, I think if you hang out with me long enough in my therapy sessions, like I talk pretty candidly about like how much I'm learning in the session too from my clients, <laughs> like, right? How much wisdom I have honed from hearing, you know, all of these families and all these recovering people talk. So um, it has been an equal gift to me. Um, Forgive me if I for sound if I start getting too cheesy, but I really do feel that way. Okay, so finding me. um, So I am now in private practice. It's called collaborative counseling um, here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Um, I do some virtual work. I do mostly in-person work. I will say that my private caseload stays pretty full. Mm -hmm. um, But Uh, I do run this Empowering Families course, and I tend to think for most families, that is a great starting place. In fact, I would even make a case that if I could choose between individual therapy and the course, um, you know, if both were totally available and, you know, equal priced and all that kind of thing, I would probably say start with the course, because I think of it as sort of like a download on a computer. It's like getting all, like really getting your head on straight about all how this works and how you want to think about it and getting out of survival mode and into thriving mode. And, you know, I think even therapy can be a whole lot more productive once we've had that reset happen or had that, right. you know, that computer update in our brain happen. Um, people, come, I find people come into therapy in a much more constructive place, ready to like, ready to dig in and work. And I, I I tend to feel like it's that combo of skill development, like what do I do? How do I do it? How do I set boundaries? How do I communicate? How do I cope with my emotions, you know? Um how you know, how do I enable in the good ways but not the unhealthy ways and how do I know the difference? You know, I think that coupled with that support community is the magic ticket. I think that's really where people are able to find their best life and sort of reclaim some joy in their life again and find some balance in their life again. It's that combo of those two.
0: Yes. And with, with the course, is it like a, a couple times a year that you enroll for it or how, how often is it offered?
1: Yeah, that's a good yeah. question. So when you took it, it was an open course um, at yeah. the medical university, so you could kind of hop in at any time during the ten weeks. And if you started on session four, you just ended on session three, like after it came back around again. Yep. Um, in private practice, I've had to run it a little differently, just because of like business, like the logistics of running a private practice. So I do run it um, as a closed group. Um, so it's ten weeks, and then I take like a two month break usually to just get intakes done and manuals printed. I'm like a mm-hmm. I'm like a one man band, small practice wizard. you know, like, I'm like the yeah. girl to staples and sending stuff to the post office, <laughs> like, no, no, no intern here. Just me. Right. Um, and then I, as soon as I can get the next one, the next cycle going, we hop in. And like I mentioned, it's, you know, it's a hybrid model. So we have both in-person and virtual participants, which the first couple cycles was kind of sloppy, but now we have it more down to a science and
0: that's it, actually pretty awesome. So people can go to the website, get some more information on there about it, and then also reach out to you if they're interested in working with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my website is collaborativecounselingllc.com. And uh, there is a tab um, that says course right on the website. And that has all the info. And if you scroll down to the bottom... um, there's a, a button you can push that says, I think, curriculum overview or more about curriculum or something like that, and that's really where you're going to get the synopsis of kind of what is what are we really covering in this ten weeks, and would it be a good fit for what you're what you need right now?
0: Yes, and I think the TED Talk is also on your website too. People can watch it on there, right? I, I did add that recently. You did, and I'm going to link all that too in the show notes. But uh, thank you, Taylor. So, in closing, you know, do you have a message that? we can leave the listeners with, if somebody out there is really struggling and wants to ask for help, I'm going to pass the mic to you on this one, because you always know what to say in these moments. And I think it would be in in good measure to leave maybe a a note of hope for some people that are listening to this and that are really in the thick of it and struggling. Mm. Well, that was a tall order. Say something
1: (laughs) something genius, Karen, in the last one second. I know you can do it. (laughs) You know, I think that what ends up happening is um, addiction becomes the center of our universe when it's mm-hmm. in our life, and it's all that we can see, and it, and we become trapped in the web, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's terrifying, and we feel that we are constantly playing defense on it. Um, and it's a it's a badass disease. I mean, I mean I'm not hope I can swear on your podcast. Of but course you can. Okay. Well, <laughs> that it's a motherfucking
0: <laughs> you know me, Karen. Death. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, I mean, it's a atrocious um, disease. I, I truly hate this disease, but the people suffering from the disease uh, are wonderful, wonderful people. And we can't, we can't lose the people in the process, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think recognizing that you have a right to find yourself again in this process and figure out what are my values What is my identity? Who do do I want to be through this disease rather than how is this disease affecting me really becomes the key. And sometimes we just can't do that alone. Sometimes we need to have objectivity to help us with that process.
0: Yep. I completely agree. I think that's a great message to end this on. And I just want to say again that your work in the world is so appreciated and you know, what you've done in my own life is so appreciated and I'm really excited. You know, this is the season finale of season one of the podcast and and it was done this way for a reason because, you know, it ties together so much of my story and the messages and the stories I shared early on. So I'm really proud of it and excited to, to share it out with the world. So thank you so much for being on and, you're the best, Karen. I appreciate mm-hmm. it so much. Thank
1: you. I am so honored. And I also just want to give you and Billy a shout out because you guys have done, I mean, not only have you worked, truly done your work and continue to do your work, um, but you're now paying it forward. And that is such yeah. a great, such a great gift. And what you have not said in here, because you're being humble, is that I have a rotation of speakers come in for one of my um one, for, for one session out of the 10 to talk about how they've applied the tools from the course in their own lives. And Taylor, you know, you have been one of the speakers that have come through over the years. So um, yeah. I'm so glad that we can support each other and in turn, hopefully get the word out to to a greater audience.
0: Me too. Me too. And it's an honor to get to do that and to share my story in that group that, you know, I came in the doors of a broken mess at one point. So, you know, thank you for for the support that you give Billy and I. And, and again, I mean, part of this whole road of recovery is is giving back where we can, even if that just, you know, shares the message of you're not alone and I'm here if someone needs me, you know, so that's, that's my message today for sure. Love it. Well, thank you, Karen. I really appreciate your time today. We'll do it again sometime because I know that people are going to, there's going to be incredible feedback on this. And I would love to have you come back on sometime and talk a little bit more.
1: Perfect. I mean, girl, you know, I love to talk.
0: (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Thanks, Karen. Okay.